Welcome back to Experts Only. I'm your host, John Powers. I'm the co-founder of Clean Capital and served as President Obama's Chief Sustainability Officer. On this podcast, we explore solutions to climate change by talking to industry leaders about the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance. You can get more episodes at cleancapital.com. Welcome back to Experts Only. I'm your host, John Powers. Today, we have the one and only Jigger Shaw. Many of you know him from his amazing work across solar for for decades, but now he is the director of the Department of Energy's Loan Program Office and is really revitalizing that office and developing a new American approach to commercialization, which is setting a framework to align capital on all stages so we can both grow and scale the technologies we need to solve climate change. So I hope you not only enjoy the conversation, but find out how you can get involved and uh, be part of that uh, approach to commercialization. As always, you can get more episodes at cleancapital.com. Jager, thanks so much for joining me at Experts Only. My pleasure. We've known each other a long time. Uh, you have uh, just a renowned uh, expertise in this space. People know you across the industry, but I want to sort of look back, you know, 20 years ago, be- before SunEd, before uh, Carbon War Room, um, gener- and Generate, you know, what got you interested in the idea of clean energy and addressing climate change? Well, I mean, to be honest, I don't think I was that interested in addressing climate change 20 years ago. I think I was focused on uh, technology commercialization. Like when I was 16, I read a book and, you know, learned about solar power. And I was like, why aren't we doing this? You know, and I was 16. So I didn't actually know about politics and, you know, like uh, the powers that be and incumbents and all that stuff. I was just like, this is really cool. Why do we keep boiling water to make electricity when we could actually just generate you know, electrons directly from a semiconductor? And, you know, so it set me on my life and I got a degree from the University of Illinois and worked with Ty Newell, who is a great professor there who cared deeply about solar, who I actually just happened to talk to last week. And and then, you know, I, I went out in the world to try to find myself and figure out what was going on. And, and you know, like, it took a long time to figure out that people just didn't want to pay for 20 years worth of electricity bills up front to participate in the solar revolution. But I think, uh, but I definitely wasn't motivated by climate change 20 years ago. Yeah. Well, that's good to know. And I mean, if you look at the, sort of the track record of what you've built and you continue to, as, as the industry's grown, be in the, the, the front end of understanding the needs of what will move it forward, whether it be developing the PPA or, you know, the, the stuff you guys were addressing in the carbon war room around issues like shipping and other, other major, um, uh, market forces. And then, you know, when you generate, you guys are really looking at how do you drive project finance early stage to, to move, um, move some of these technologies forward. It seems like all that work has prepared you to land perfectly well <laughs> driving the seat you're in today at Department of Energy. You know, what sort of most excites you about the opportunity that sort of sits in front of you at LPO? Well, I mean, I, I think that it was an opportunity to serve. And, you know, I think as someone who has served this country valiantly, um, you understand it better than most. Um, you know, I, I certainly haven't served by putting my uh, life at risk for the country, but I but I do think when called to serve, I mean, you have to take it seriously. And so then the question really became like, what what can we do with this program? Right? The secretary clearly talked about it in her in her uh, confirmation hearing. She said the program had been dormant, which it really had been. And yeah. you know, the question is, what could we do with it? And I think that when you think about 
my life's work, it's, it has been about not blaming people for what they believe to be rational decisions, but instead trying to figure out how you change the construct of their decision-making to get them to make better decisions. Right. So, you know, I didn't want to blame a bunch of consumers who didn't want to pay for 20 years worth of electricity bills up front. I didn't want to blame a bunch of investors who thought that solar was too risky in 2003 to, to, you know, to make a 14% return. Right. The first, uh, you know, first uh, deals I was offering to Goldman Sachs. And, you know, but the question really became like, what is holding people back? And like, you figure all these things out. And I think when you think about, you know, Senator Domenici's vision for this program in 2005, when he created it, and then when it got funded in 2009, it was really that the Department of Energy has all these technologies. I mean, just so many that they've gotten through lab scale demonstration and they just sit there on the shelf gathering dust because the private sector says, well, it only makes a 10% rate of return, which isn't high enough for us to 100% equity finance it or venture capital finance it, right? And the debt players are saying, well, we don't want to get involved until there's been 20 of these deployed, right? Okay. And so you have this, this void here and the loan programs office was created to solve it. And then the fact that we're sitting here in 2021, 16 years after Senator Domenici created it, and it's still not functioning to the full extent to what it could do, that made me sad, right? And the fact that the Secretary of Energy said, I'm going to spend political capital to make this functional and make it work, I mean, inspires a person, right? And so I said, yeah. well, look, if you're going to take that much political capital and spend it on this, you know, I'd be honored to serve and try to figure out a way to fix it. Yeah, she's her vision overall has been really, really powerful, tied into, of course, the president's vision to, to drive some significant, significant change. I want to step back for a second and help the audience understand, you know, people understand no loan program office from, you know, 10 years ago, right? And they know yeah. through um, some of the, the unfortunate public stories that came out about it, but it really has had a tremendous track record through that phase, executing and getting returns for the public dollar. Can you talk a little bit about that window of time? And you know, people might think about Slender or Fisker or these other issues, but there are a lot of wins that came out of LPO. And I think that story does not get told enough that it was actually a really successful pro- uh, initiative uh, before you know it went dormant the last few years. Yeah, look, I think that, you know, I mean, look, when we we should just start with Solyndra so we can get out of the way. I mean, the bottom line is that was sort of the first loan that was made. There was no director in place at the time it was made. And I think um, there was a feeling that, you know, that they should just push it out the door because we had a, a global financial crisis and, right, you know, right. we need shovel-ready projects and that project was ready to go. So I get it, right? But when you think about all the other missteps that we've made since then, um, we haven't gotten the political blowback for it just because I think that the processes and procedures in place in the office have been tightened substantially and we are supposed to take risk. So you are going to have some issues, whether it's a bound solar or Tanampa or some of the other deals that, that we had issues with. I think you haven't seen as much blowback because the level of thoughtfulness that went into underwriting those deals was, was much higher. Um, and that, you know, was as a result of us learning, which is, you know, a, a very human thing to do. And when you think about the, the solar and wind industry, um, there was no commercial debt really available for those industries in 2009, 2010, or even in 2008, right before the financial crisis. Right. And even after we provided our loan guarantee, many of those projects were purchased by Berkshire Hathaway at much higher rates of return than they ultimately could have gone for. And it wasn't until 2014 that the banking 
industry finally got their arms around uh, creating a competitive market for debt for solar and wind projects. And so when you think about that bridge to bankability that we catalyzed and then was created in 2014, it took the industry four years after we initially provided those guarantees to really get comfortable with solar and wind as an asset class, such that banks started competing over providing debt to those players. Um, and tax equity was the same. Remember, tax equity was very difficult to get in 2012, 2013. And now it's a pretty competitive marketplace for large utility scale projects. But also we funded a number of geothermal projects, which I think that track record is what is sowing the seeds for advanced geothermal today. We funded a transmission line, which um, has become a really big, important part of the decarbonization of the grid, which I think that experience has given the government a lot of understanding of what to do differently for offshore wind and, you know, and other programs that we're doing. So there are a number of industries, you know, four in particular, but probably five that really came out of that where we were able to bring technologies over the bridge to bankability to more mainstream finance. Yeah. And I mean, the market today is so much significantly different for it was, you know, before the office went dormant and your new approach to really revitalize the office and putting out the frameworks I want to talk about here in a second about the American approach to commercialization, it, I think is, is going to be really monumental in getting folks aligned to help drive uh, implementation. Before getting that, though, I, I do want to just mention you've put together a rock star team and continue to put together a rock star team. You know, how did you sort of attract some of the best and brightest into that office? Well, I think it comes from, you know, the the genuine desire to, you know, to serve, right? Yeah. And I think that when my announcement went out, we had many, many people that reached out to congratulate me, but also many people who offered their assistance. And I, you know, instead of viewing their their offer as polite, I was like, right. well, if you're serious, you should join me. <laughs> and a lot of them all said, well, damn, I guess I should, you know? And and we were able to get a lot of uh, senior executives from clean energy uh, companies to, to you know, say, well, actually, you know, I had an exit recently, et cetera. I'm like, I'm happy to come in and join. Um, we got a lot of communications prof- professionals like Jamie, who like you know has a huge amount of expertise uh, and worked in the Department of Energy before to you know come back into the fold. I think we got a lot of lawyers who you know had left the office or. Um, were experienced in project finance to, you know, say, you know what, actually I want to do things that are more meaningful and less boring. And so we were able to attract really fantastic people uh, to the office. And then that led us to really revamp the office and not treat people like they were idiots, right? Because, you know, the, the biggest problem is you've got all these people who are, you know, the best of the American innovation spectrum who uh, have raised C rounds and D rounds or spac their company and gone public. And, and then they come to our office and they have no idea how to read government forms, right? right. And, you know, yeah. and we put a whole team together and said, look, you don't have to know how to do this. We'll hold your hand through the process. We'll explain to you what each paragraph means and why we need that information, what the importance of that information is. And it turns out half the information was not needed. So then we edited our documents and got rid of that half and said, well, you don't have to bother collecting it because we don't need it. And you know, we've refined the process through the help of our staff that we were able to attract, but also through the help of the feedback that we got from our applicants around the hardest parts of this. And I would say that the process is clearly not easy. It's not intended to be, but it's certainly far more straightforward than it was when we first came in. Yeah. 
So let's, I'm going to get in the process down the road, but you know, the loan program office has what $40 billion in in loan authority to put out there. And I think what's been really helpful is the framework that you're, you're, you and your team are developing around the, the really the unique American approach to commercialization and how to best use those dollars really to help uh, push forward private investment, bring capital, as you know, from all different parts of the, the value chain. And can you talk about that framework and, and how um, and why it's important for sort of aligning all those different stakeholders? Yeah, no, it's a great, it's a great question. And it's one that I think is, is something that I think confuses a lot of people across the ecosystem. Right. So there are many people, including private sector folks, right, who have a belief that what China is doing is superior to what the United States is doing, or, or they believe that what Germany or Canada are doing is superior to what the United States is doing. But I think largely they just don't understand what the United States is doing. Right. The United States does not put the government at the center of innovation. Right. We put the private sector and our innovators at the center of innovation. Right. And so, you know, we we're often saying that that the private sector is really the source of, you know, like sort of disruptiveness and innovation, all those things. But they're actually just as plagued by inertia as anybody else is. Right. I mean, this venture capital community does things exactly the same way they did 25 years ago. They don't like to disrupt themselves just as much as, you know, the traditional uh, corporations. Right. And so what the government does is the government has a bunch of policies. Right. And we have tax credits, we have demonstration grants, we have the loan programs office, we have uh, government procurement, right, Buy America uh, provisions, et cetera. And I think a lot of people think that the government is the aircraft carrier in the center, right? And that's not true. The private sector is the aircraft carrier in the center, and the government are the tugboats on the side that are trying to, like, move the aircraft carrier three degrees to the left or three degrees to the right uh, to avoid some of these huge, you know, pitfalls like islands that are, or rock croppings that are, you know, in the water. And we're trying to like, you know, try to steer things, right? And once you take that frame, right, then the question becomes, what's the point, right? What's the point of this demonstration project? What's the point of these tax credits? What's the point of the loan programs office? Well, it's to get the private sector to dedicate funds to these new sectors. That's the point, right? So now the question becomes, is the government soliciting the right level of feedback from the private sector so that they know whether these policies will, you know, get this much capital formation on the other side? And further, when you think about what the secretary has announced around Earthshots, for instance, We all know that a lot of those cost reductions come from the learning curve. So you now have to deploy seven cumulative doublings of deployment to be able to get from $5 a kilogram of hydrogen to the dollar a kilogram of hydrogen that the secretary announced, right? And I think we both know that probably we can get from $5 to maybe $250 a kilogram just through scale, right? And then the other... 250 or 225 to a dollar will require more R&D and innovation, right? Just like solar panels came down in cost from manufacturing excellence, but it also came down in cost because R&D took it from 12% efficiency to 19% efficiency for the panels, right? right? So it was both. And so when you think about that, then the question becomes, 
have we asked the private sector with whether what we're doing is enough, right? We have all these new transmission authorities that came out of the bipartisan infrastructure legislation. Is it enough? If you're a developer of transmission, are you going to spend a hundred million bucks now to develop a transmission line because of all these new authorities we just provided, right? Right. If right. the answer is no, well, then we clearly missed the mark, right? right? Clearly, right. your board hasn't authorized you to spend a hundred million dollars. Now, we're going to get in your face and get you to tell us what the feedback is. Why did you vote against putting a hundred million dollars into development of a new transmission line? Give us the feedback so we can improve. And we can make sure these policy mechanisms really do unlock carbon sequestration and storage or hydrogen or transmission or, you know, like green cement or green steel, I mean, or offshore wind or whatever it is that we're talking about, right? And I think in general, the government for a long time thought, well, it's RFI process, the request for information process was suitable. But you and I know, both know the vast majority of our peers in this sector are, you know, closet libertarians. Yeah. And they're like, <laughs> you know, I did all this stuff on my own. The government had nothing to do with it, even though I'm using $4 billion with the government tax credits every year. And I invest right. heavily into the trade associations to make sure that those tax credits keep streaming. They don't ever engage. I mean, and, yep. and then when we, when we do get engagement, it's generally through the government relations people or the trade associations. And I love those people. I'm not bad mouthing them, yeah. but they're not capital allocators. Right, the capital allocators are the CEO. So I'm yeah. like, are you going to allocate capital or not based on these new policies? Who likely and, never even knew the RFI, RFI process <laughs> happened, so they're definitely not putting input in. Right. right, and so you know, so I'm I'm shaking the trees and forcing them to respond and saying, hey, you know, like this is the moment where you get to tell me that good idea that you said on the podcast. Well, don't put it on the podcast. Actually, write it up and send it in the RFI process. And then we'll change the way we provide those grants. So they're not just 50-50 cost share grants, which you don't want to do. I get it. And instead, you want us to solidify a contract for differences so that you you can raise commercial debt and you can train the market so that once that grant is over, right, then the market is ready to go. Got it. Okay. Well, then say that to me so that I can say that to the internal people at DOE and they can change the way that the funding opportunity um, gets structured. So with that in mind, like, have you guys seen a ramp up in applications coming to LPO? Oh, yeah. Opportunities? Oh, yeah. I mean, since the secretary has been talking about us all the time, I mean, we're up to, we're up to, I think, a cumulative of over the last six months, we've averaged $1.6 billion worth of applications a week. A week? A week, wow. right? And so we're at roughly 115 applications that have either been submitted or we've gotten an early draft of it and uh, representing $90 billion worth of resources. Um, and we think that we're, we'll still maintain that $1.6 billion a week all the way through 2022. And you looking at the different verticals that you guys are addressing, do you see that coming in more weighted towards one versus the other, or is it a pretty spec, pretty wide spectrum? What you're seeing? It's it's pretty it's pretty amazing how diverse they are. We've got three applications for brand new nuclear plants, if you'll believe it. Wow! Right, a fourth one expected in the next few weeks. We've got uh, twelve billion dollars worth of applications for carbon sequestration and storage type projects and fossil 
you know, projects, which is great. We've got yep. uh, a number of projects, of course, in the renewable energy and efficient energy, you know, categories, which is like sustainable aviation fuels and green hydrogen and, you know, a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, but we have a lot of industrial emissions uh, applications, right? Green chemicals, green cement, green steel, you know, some of that kind of stuff, which I think is awesome. And then, of course, on yeah. the ATVM side, the Advanced Technology Vehicle Manufacturing Program, you got all these new electric vehicle manufacturing facilities. You got battery gigafactories. You got, you know, I think we have nine applications that have either come in or are being prepared for critical minerals uh, and, manu- and making those here, recycling batteries. And then we even have our first tribal energy loan guarantee program application that's come in. So we're hoping to, you know, that that gets through the process here soon. And um, we got three more after that in the tribal energy loan guarantee program. So we're active. Yeah, very active. So with that, uh, that ramp up in activity, one, how do you guys sort of prioritize where we're going to be putting the dollars? And two, does the current, uh, obviously the infrastructure bill and then build back better, not just the agenda, but the actual legislation, is that going to continue to enhance and grow uh, your impact? Yeah. I mean, in general, I'd say that we're not really, um, you know, picking uh, one application over another. So it's not like we have five applications and we say, could you talk through that process for a second, just so folks that may not understand what the application process is, how that sort of works. Yeah, that's great. Um, so, I mean, we basically do extensive pre-consultations. So we, we basically give you all of the advice around the low hanging fruit and the, the long poles in the tent early. So we say, well, you might, you might not meet the innovation requirement. You might meet the innovation requirement. Here's an integrated business plan that you have to do, or here's, um, you know, greenhouse gas emission savings or, you know, whatever it is that we have as our requirements, we try to really give you a good sense of it before you apply. So that way you don't have to spend the 500 hours putting an application together. Right. Sure. And then once we have a good sense, and we're never going to know for sure until you submit it, right? Because sometimes people will say one thing verbally yeah. and then submit something different in writing. Um, you know, then we invite you to come in. And we only invite applications to come into the office that we think have a chance of getting approved. If we don't think you have a chance of getting approved, we tell you to save your time, right? Yeah. So, so all $90 billion of applications that are actively being prepared are ones that we think have a good chance of getting through the entire process. Then once you once you submit it, we first do a review of the greenhouse gas emissions uh, savings and the innovation requirements, right? And we basically send you a letter that says, yes, you save greenhouse gas emissions sufficiently to matter, right? We're not going to do something that just has a one percent savings, right? And um, and you uh, you know are innovative, and we send you a letter saying that we believe you've crossed that threshold, right? The next stage is to give us the thirty to fifty page sim. You give us the full data room. You give us the right. financial model. And then you have to hire one of the seven approved rating agencies to do a private rating. And we don't really care what they rate your project, although it's interesting. And what we yeah. care about is the 75 pages of, of advice that they provide right. uh, around why they provided that rating. It's yeah. it, it important for OMB to believe that like we didn't just figure it all out at DOE, but we got a second opinion. Yeah, Basically. if folks that don't know, OMB is the Office of Management and Budget. That's right. Sorry. That's uh, right. The, the acronyms, acronyms get a little crazy here in the government. <laughs> I get it. Uh, my wife used to work at OMB, so I've, uh, <laughs> I've, uh, I've known that one for a long time. Um, yeah, and then, and then once you've submitted that, that next set of material, we determine that it's all there, 
right? And sometimes it's not. We ask you for more stuff. And then we hire a bunch of consultants and other third parties to help us do the diligence. And that could easily cost us a million bucks or more to do that, right? right? And that's why our average loan size is $750 million, right? And so we can do smaller deals, $100 million deals or less, but like, but generally speaking, it's bigger loans, right? And then they, and then when we close the, the conditional commitment, which is basically a 25-page term sheet, right? Then it's largely gone through the government, right? That means it's been approved by the Office of Management Budget. It's been approved right. by the U.S. Treasury Department, approved by the Secretary, ultimately. And you have a term sheet, right? And then you close the loan, right? That's a legal document that actually closes yep. it. Um, and that's when you owe us... Uh, full reimbursement of all the fees is when we close, right? So you don't pay anything right. through this whole process. You reimburse us for what it cost us to underwrite your loan uh, at that at that endpoint, and then and then we do first disbursement, right? When you've met the milestones, right? So you might say, well, we will only do first disbursement after the equity has actually come in and been funded, for instance. Yeah, and how long in in the projects you've seen? I mean, you guys have only been in there now for what six months? Was that long? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Like, what What do you, what, just so to set the table for folks and having, by the way, just for the audience, I've been in some of these early conversations as clean capital and folks we know are, and, and as Jigger said, the, the collaboration is phenomenal and the, the advice that help think through how to approach it is phenomenal. So you don't have to come in with the perfect cookie cutter to, to put forward, but they, they help advise you on how to think, think about it. But, you know, once that application's in, is it you know an eighteen month window? Like what's a what's a realistic timeline on the underwriting so, and getting to closing? So I you know I think I would say that in general it was sort of probably a twelve month window before. I would say that we've done a pretty good job of shrinking it to six. That's great. Um, and we've got one project in particular that looks like it'll get done in four. Wow. So it can be pretty fast. I mean, obviously, it depends on how prepared. The applicant is, and I, I do. I do want to make sure that we acknowledge fully that the vast majority of our applicants that come into our office are not prepared to do project finance, and that's okay. The right. whole point of this is for us to be a safe place for these entrepreneurs who are, frankly, like I said, the best of of their generation uh, and the best that America has to offer. But they're experts in manufacturing stuff. They're experts in, in the next generation of hydrogen electrolyzer technology. They're not experts in commercial debt. The vast majority of these folks have raised A rounds, B rounds, C rounds, D rounds from equity. And equity, as you know, that story yeah. is always about the future. Right. And commercial debt is always about the past. Right. And <laughs> the past is not always beautiful. I get right. it, right? Like there were a lot of mistakes made. You learn from those mistakes. You put them in version 3.0 of the product. But I think that there's just a lot of confusion and a lot of um, uneasiness from these entrepreneurs around commercial debt because they don't want to be judged. And a lot right. of what I've said to them is like, first of all, I am judging you. It's not an uncomfortable process. I'm not judging you badly. I'm just judging you to see whether we're going to have a reasonable prospect of repayment, right? And right. we're here because we're supposed to believe in you. That's the whole point of this office. Now, we may not get there. And if we don't get there, I'll give you a very clear uh, set of uh, feedback. And so I'm not closing the door. I'm just saying we're not going to get there in this round. Come back to us when you've solved these three things. Right. And and I think a lot of the folks that we've invited into the 90 billion, right? Because there's a lot of folks that we tell, like, look, you're just not going to make through the office, so don't bother. Right. right. 
But the 90 billion we actually have pre-evaluated and we actually think will probably have a good chance of making it through the office. But they may end up with just one condition precedent to closing that they just can't solve. Yeah. And then in that case, we say, great, we're going to put you on ice. And when you go solve it, come back to us and we'll start where we left off. Yeah. And realistically, like the four to six month window is is pretty commercial to what we're seeing for a big debt facility. Yeah, that's the goal for sure. Yeah. So I want to go back to the framework of the American approach to commercialization, which I find so interesting and refreshing and, um, you know, gets me really optimistic about sort of the path ahead. Could you just take a second and paint a picture of maybe a case study or I don't know if it goes to a company, but an example of like technology that followed that framework? or is following that framework and what it means for really, you know, growth and scale over the next, say, you know, five to seven years, right? Well, let's go through, let's go through three of them because I feel like um, the most important thing I would say is that every framework is uniquely different. And I think we should just acknowledge that because I think that people in government in particular just love these like, doctrines. Like this is the new doctrine, right? And that doesn't work. So I'll give you three things that were funded heavily within the bipartisan infrastructure legislation, which have three different frameworks, right? So the first one is nuclear, right? We, there were, there was billions of dollars put into the bipartisan infrastructure legislation to support the next generation of small modular reactors, right? And advanced reactors. Well, you and I both know that those are very difficult things to do. Right, you got Bill Gates with TerraPower. You got the other people with X Energy. You got folks like NewScale. You've got GE Hitachi. You've got Holtec. You got all these designs, right? And on the micro reactor side, you've got like Oaklo and Radiant Nuclear and all these like great designs. We evaluated forty designs in the Office of Nuclear Energy for the Advanced Reactor Demonstration Program, and you know they picked X Energy and TerraPower, right, to get those those first grants. Um, well, you know we have the ability with the $10 billion or so that we have in the loan programs office for nuclear to stand up the supply chain, right? So these, these plants are not going to be built until 2027, 2028, 2029, right? But the only way for them to get that done is for us to start building up the supply chain now so that right. they can start construction in 2024 and be completed by 2029, right? Now for the first one. And then we need to build like 10 of them in order to justify the supply chain, right? Right. And so we have been working tirelessly with NEI and all of the utility members and all of those people to say, look, what would make you want to want to buy a nuclear plant, right, right? right? Like, is it this grant program? Is it the tax credit that, you know, was announced? Is it, you know, like, is it, uh, you know, something around nuclear waste? Is it around, you know, the fuel supply? Like, you know, what would cause you to want to do this? And some of it is, of course, we have a lot of locations like, you know, coal power plants that are going to be shut down. And many of those towns have been power plant communities for 50 years, right? And they're going to lose out on 50% of their entire town budget because the property taxes that were being paid by that coal plant was 50% of the budget, right? So that's Boy Scout troops and Girl Scout troops and others that just don't get money, right? And and, you know, the secretary cares deeply about that. And, you know, she has her place-based initiative and, and she wants to figure out how to do this. Well, guess what, right? Like when you look at flexible base load power plants, you could do advanced geothermal, you could do BECS, right? With biomass, you can do yeah. um, low impact hydro and you can do nuclear. Well, not the other three technologies may not be relevant to all these coal sites, but nuclear often is, yeah. right? And, the and so, 
So when you think about that conversation and how to do it, it does require $100 billion of private sector deployment to be able to justify all the supply chain investments. So you need to figure out how to get to $100 billion worth of nuclear deployment. No easy task. But it is something that the Congress has asked us to do, right, with the money that they've provided us in the bipartisan infrastructure legislation. And so that conversation is ongoing, and there'll be roadmaps created, and we're excited about that conversation. The next sector we, we could talk about is hydrogen, right? We have a lot of money for hydrogen that came out of the bipartisan infrastructure right. legislation, right? We have hydrogen hubs. We have, like, you know, uh, demonstration projects. We have all these different colors of the rainbow that people want to talk about. We've got, you know, um, and, and then you also have existing hydrogen infrastructure, right? Like Air Products has an existing like $700 million, 700 mile uh, uh, hydrogen pipeline in, you know, in Louisiana and Texas, right? right? And so, so, you know, how do you do that? And then you've got the, the secretary who's talked about her earth shot for hydrogen and getting $5 to a dollar. And, you know, so where does that go and how do all these people fit in? And you've got, you know, already very large bets that have been made by the private sector. I think there's $500 billion worth of projects that have been announced already in the United States, right? Now, not all of them have been funded, but you could imagine getting $100 billion put together. And we have a lot of interest from international investors, like from Korea and from, you know, from other countries. And, and so, you know, so how does one put that together? And what are the business models, right? Is it, um, you know, just a green hydrogen facility that's co-located with solar and wind? Is it uh, a green hydrogen facility that's put on top of a salt dome and, you know, and then you store the hydrogen under the salt dome and right. you use that natural gas power plant as a peaker plant, right? Is it, um, you know, using hydrogen for chemicals, um, you know, cause hydrogen is a big component for, you know, chemical manufacturing. Do you turn it into ammonia, which is a much higher value product? And, you know, you right. know, we, we import a ton of hydrogen from the, or from ammonia from the Ukraine. We, it's made in the Ukraine. It comes by ship into Tampa. We have a ammonia pipeline from Tampa to Louisiana. And then we have another pipeline from Louisiana up to the Midwest, which is where they get a lot of their fertilizer, right? right. Could we do that locally instead? Yeah. Yes, we can, right? So the question really becomes like, what is the business plan and what is the private sector choosing? Like, so to go back to nuclear, there's all these designs. Does Jigger Shaw get to pick winners and losers? No, the utilities get to pick winners and losers. Which design do they want to buy? Let's say they decide to build a nuclear plant. Do they want the G Itachi design? Do they want the TerraPower design? Do they want the X Energy design? Right. Which one do they want to buy, right? They have to pick it and then we then we'll respond to the ones that they chose and then build the supply chain for those, right? And hydrogen's the same. Which application most interests them? Is it hydrogen trucks, right? Is it hydrogen for fertilizer? Is it hydrogen for the low carbon fuel standard credit program in California, right? right? What are all the models, right? They have to decide. I could tell them what DOE thinks, but what DOE yeah. thinks only matters to a limited extent. They have to be the one who chooses which application they want to scale up. The last one is CCS, right? We clearly have a lot of CCS already being done, right? ADM has had those class six wells in Illinois where they take ethanol uh, industrial processes, which is a pure form of CO2 that comes off that process, put it into a pipeline and stuck it into a class six well. We've been doing that for 10 years, right? right? Then you have direct air capture, 
We have three and a half billion dollars that came out of the bipartisan infrastructure legislation for direct air capture. And you got folks like Stripe talking about, you know, how much they're buying direct air capture credits. And you got Microsoft and others. What do they want to invest in? Which approach do they like the best? I think I think when I listened to the podcast of the day, uh, the Shale Khan has, he was talking about kelp. Yeah. Uh, Nan, I think from Stripe was talking about kelp that they were burying to the depths of the ocean after they grew it. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you know, like, you know, like I could tell you what I think is the best idea, but it doesn't matter. Right. We need a hundred billion dollars, even in, in hydrogen and in carbon sequestration and direct air capture of capital formation. And then we use our three and a half billion dollars to facilitate and catalyze that. We also use the 45 Q credits to catalyze that hydrogen has promised some credits in the tax bill. So what do you think about those three sectors? which were given a lot of money in the bipartisan infrastructure legislation. There are three very different strategies. Very different. Yeah. But so we got to figure you, it out. How do you, if you had advice for folks on the, uh, the other end, listen to this and they wanted to add their voice into this conversation, right? They could be the CEOs of a company. They could be on the venture capital side. Um, they could be, you know, on the, the investing side in general, like what, what did, where do they begin to plug in? Like, how do they become part of this dialogue so that they, they can make sure their voice is part of this commercialization conversation? Well, I mean, at the very least, they should always contact us. The loan programs office is talking to probably close to 500 CEOs a week, right? A week, Amazing. right? Amazing. Some of them are obviously follow-ups. So we're talking to the same one, like eight weeks in a row, yeah, but yeah, yeah. 500 <laughs> CEOs a week, right? And so- like we're happy to add you to the list. And so if you have something to say and you think that us putting this money out the door differently would support your business better, we want to hear from you. Now, we may not decide that that's the overarching consensus of the private sector voice, right? It's just one company's voice, but it's important. And we'll also send you to the folks who are leading the conversation on that sector. So, you know, for instance, we have very loud voices in the carbon sequestration and storage space that we could send you to and say, you know, this group is consolidating 10 different, you know, uh, pieces of feedback from these companies, right? And this group's doing the yeah. same. So you should talk to them and, and see whether your uh, idea is the most compelling, right? I've got a bunch of venture capitalists who basically have very strong opinions. I was like, great, write it up. They're they like, do. <laughs> well, actually, but a lot of the venture capitalists said, didn't I just like give you my feedback verbally? I was like, screw you. What is this verbal thing? I'm not your like handmaiden. Like write it up and send it to me. They're like, okay, fine. So like, I mean, you have to write it up. It's the way the government works. Yeah, you, course, like, yeah. you, can, you can make it six paragraphs in an email, but you got to write it up and send it to our office. And we're yeah. happy to engage with you on the phone. And then we're happy to send you to the right people within DOE who need to hear that from you or to the right nonprofits externally. They're doing a lot of work in each one of these areas um, to do that, right? And then- and then I think the other thing that we're finding is there's a lot of folks who are putting together workshops. I mean, just to put this in perspective, right? The era stimulus bill, you know, was over $10 billion of new money to DOE, which is great, right? The bipartisan infrastructure legislation alone is $62.5 billion, let alone whether Build Back Better gets passed and, you know, and how much more money we're going to get from that, Yeah. right? And so, like, this is a gargantuan amount of money. If the private sector takes a libertarian point of view here and doesn't tell us how to spend the money, then you know damn well that three years from now, they're going to say that we wasted it all. Exactly. Yep. And, I, and I'm here to say that it's their fault. 
right? <laughs> this is the moment to actually give us the feedback to tell us how to do it right. And I'm here and I'm all ears, right? I think everyone knows that I don't have a dog in this fight. I just want to make sure that that private sector capital gets formed and so that we achieve liftoff for these sectors. Jigger, this has been super helpful. I, and I will you know, want to come back a year from now and talk about where we are and where we can go forward. But I do have one final question for you. As someone that has now crossed the threshold, like what has most surprised you slash motivated you for being on the, the public sector side now, working in government? Well, I mean, I look, I do think that everyone is more open-minded than even I knew. And I knew they were open-minded because, you know, I talked to some of them before I took the job. Yeah. But they're even more open-minded than I thought they were, right? Whether it's state governor's offices from, you know, red states and blue states, I'm talking to all of them and they all want to attract this level of economic development, but they genuinely don't know how to. They're like, we don't know what assets we have to bring to bear. I, you know, many folks for instance, have state financing agencies. Did you know that the clean water funds in all 50 states have been deemed by Fitch to have a AAA rating, right? The US EPA has already cleared the clean water funds to provide credit enhancement. Like even if they don't wanna provide dollars to the companies, let's say they say, well, you know, the wastewater treatment plants don't want a single dollar of that money to go to uh, a clean energy company. Yeah. They can guarantee a loan on your behalf with Citibank or JP Morgan or whatever else with their AAA rating and provide you a guarantee, hmm. right? And when I explain to people, they're like, "That's a, you're the first person who's told that to me. Yeah. And I'm like, well, four banks have already done it before. And EPA has already said that this is allowed, right? So there's literally all of this stuff, right, around um, workforce training. Right. There's tons of workforce training dollars and people don't know where it is. Yeah. Right. There's a lot. Buffalo, Jigger. Bring it to Buffalo. Telling well, you. but the, the, <laughs> we got to go to that mayor yeah. that got, you know, written in and yeah. say to him, hey, you know, like um, if like I'll give you Come an example. And yeah, I'll give you an example in Buffalo. Right. You have smart surfaces issues. Right. And so yeah. poor communities have a lot of dark surfaces. And so as a result, in the summertime, it's. 15 degrees warmer in those neighborhoods than it is in places that have green spaces and parks. Yep. We have money for that, right? Through DOT and through the Economic Development you know, Administration and through you know, the weatherization programs at Department of Energy, right? And they're like, well, we didn't even know to ask for that money. Right. And I was like, yeah, but you got people who are in these heat waves suffering from, they're 15 degrees warmer than the rest of the community which is unconscionable, right? So the air conditioning costs are higher. Like they, they're breathing all sorts of volatile organic compounds that come off of the asphalt because of the temperature. Like, you know, we care deeply about making sure these communities have a fair shot and we have money for that. But, you know, there's a lot of these things where, you know, folks are saying, well, we're waiting for Build Back Better to pass. I was like, yeah, I want Build Back Better to pass too, but the money's already there. Right. You can apply for it next week. And my message to the audience is apply. <laughs> Let's figure this yeah. out. So, and let you. us help you get through it. Absolutely. We're happy to help. Jigger, thank you so much. And thanks for the leadership you're, you're bringing to this issue because it's going to be, you know, to really get to where we need to be on, on climate and clean energy. It's going to take that American approach to commercialization. So thanks so much for being here today. 
Well, you were one of the major forces that inspired me to serve. So thank you I for what that. you've done and what you continue to do. Thanks for having thank me. You. Thanks. And thanks to Jamie Nolan and the team at DOE for helping put this together. And as always, our producers, Colin Young and Carly Batten. And you can get more episodes at cleancapital.com. Look forward to continuing the conversation. <laughs>